What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with our next guest, Mick Mulroy. He's a co-founder uh, of the Lobo Institute, former paramilitary operations officer at the CIA and former U.S. Marine infantry officer for 16 years. So we thank him uh, for his service. Mick, it is bad in the Middle East and it looks like it's going to get worse. What do you believe Israel should do at this point? You know, I think I heard that every day when I came into my office when I was responsible for the <laughs> Middle East. Um, and it's not always that bad. But you're right. I agree with you. It is bad right now in, 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 in two ways. Obviously, Israel has to go in and destroy uh, the enemy that attacked them on October 7th. But the people of uh, Gaza, the Palestinian, also need to be, to be allowed basic necessities such as food, water, and medicine. Uh, and it looks like that is is uh, two things that we're going to do everything we can. We'd be in the United States to make happen. Very difficult in, in a situation like this, uh, but necessary. And I think uh, I think we're going to do it. I wonder about the actual um, tools and technology that modern armies use, because we see so much reporting about Hamas having this underground tunnel network, um, which sounds terrifying. But of course, there were such uh, underground tunnel networks in previous wars, you know, decades and decades ago. So do we have ordnance that can uh, reach deep underground and destroy a network of tunnels? So, yes, the problem is when those tunnels are under buildings, um, there is ordnance that has the ability. It's time delayed. So it penetrates into the ground before it detonates and then causes this concussion that can collapse tunnels. Now, if they're for, if they're some of the tunnels in Gaza are up to 200 feet underground, mm. it won't work for them. Uh, and then on top of that, so subterranean fighting, to your point of your question, yes, we've been doing that for a while. But the complicated factor in here is uh, normally you could just use combat engineers, seal them up, uh, explode ordnance above them, collapse them. But now we have up to 220 plus hostages that might be in those tunnels. And you can't do any of those tactics that we've done in the past or that has been done in the past when it comes to subterranean warfare. You have to go mile by mile and there's over 300 miles. Uh, to try to recover these hostages at the same time you're fighting the enemy. This brings up another interesting point, um, and it's like, I guess, a moral uh, battle that um, any army is going to have internally. At what point do you say, we do not negotiate with terrorists, and we're going to move ahead with our main aim, which is destroying Hamas? You know, essentially, I mean, is it even possible to say, we will sacrifice these hostages in order to achieve our goal. So it is possible to do that. I don't think it should be done or will be done. Ultimately, uh, militaries are there to protect uh, their civilians, just like uh, our military is to protect the United States and everybody in it. 
So although it makes it much more complicated, and quite frankly, it brings a lot more risk to the force to try to recover hostages. Uh, that's that's part of what we do, and I think they will focus on doing both. It would have been much better. If I mean, Nick, the, the problem is out. obviously uh, in order to you know, in order to try and get those two hundred twenty hostages back, you could risk losing exponentially more soldiers. That's uh, you could you will risk uh, losing more soldiers. Yes, there's 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 no easy decision here. Uh, but every time you send in a hostage rescue force, you are risking the force to 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 rescue in most cases one individual, and it's a mission failure if if the hostage taker just turns and shoots the person at the last second. But you're still risking the entire force in the process, and sometimes they use it as a as a way to lure in forces to attack them. That happens all not all the time, but certainly in most hostage rescue situations. Here it could happen up to 220 times. Uh, so it because it, they could be separated, they're not going to be in the same place, and it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. And it's something that the IDF is grasping uh, right now, I think. And hopefully, and I think uh, we do have uh, members of JSOC and the CIA on the ground helping them. But they have very effective special operations, and this is just a very complicated military problem. Mick. What do you believe at this time is the risk of this becoming a more regional conflict, whether it's Syria or, or, or Lebanon? Where are we in, in that regard? So listening to I thought it was high and then listening to the Iranian uh, statements yesterday, I think it's higher. So it, it that is one of the reasons why I think the United States has been so proactive of moving uh, now a second uh, aircraft carry strike group to the eastern Mediterranean, something that's unprecedented. Now there's a. a, a the 26th MU, the Marine Expeditionary Unit, is being retasked there. And I think you're going to see more and more resources coming to the region because I believe we think Iran wants this to expand. Let's hope it doesn't. Uh, let's hope the United States doesn't have to get involved. Uh, but it looks like it's heading that way. And Iran can easily make this go from a one front war, if you will, to a three, four front war. Uh, and if they get involved directly, then this is going to be a regional war. So where do the other um, countries align if if the U.S. is drawn in uh, to a, a broader regional conflict? What happens? What do the Saudis do? You know, uh, what what do the Turks do? They're in NATO. Are, are they are they on our side against Iran? So when it turns into a war against Iran, if that's what happens, let's hope it, let's hope it does not. That would not be good for anybody, the region or the United States, and certainly not Iran, uh, then the Saudis and all, all these Gulf states who do have some uh, political ties and sympathies, certainly to the Palestinians, it could shift quite a bit because they are no friends of the Iranians. In fact, most of the Iranian efforts have been targeted toward them. If you think about the Houthis in Yemen uh, toward uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, I don't think they'll become actively involved, but certainly that'll change the calculus for them if this becomes a Israel, Iran and U.S. Uh, conflict that goes well beyond uh, Gaza. Uh, that said, it is not going to be in anybody's interest. This is going to be very destabilizing. It's going to ruin economies and it could be very substantial. Uh, if you think about it, there's several nuclear powered countries that would be involved in that. And Iran is on the precipice of getting their own nuclear weapon. Uh, and I don't know what that status is now. I'm out of the government, but it could be very close. And that's something they could be racing toward right now. Uh, Mick, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu, who had an interesting weekend over social media, uh, seemingly putting the blame on the um, intelligence apparatus of Israel for the October 7th attack. How do you put all of that into context with what the, the military is trying to achieve here? So I believe in the old adage, you know, the buck stops uh, here concept. You know, you're you're in charge, you're in charge for everything that happens or fails to happen. It, it was obviously an intelligence failure, but more than that, it was a security failure because even if you did not know that they were coming, uh, the reaction times, quite frankly, from what I've seen, are unacceptable, especially in a country the size of Israel. Uh, and that's and that's and that's saying something. But it's also important to point out that. We had a pretty massive intelligence failure, and I think we had the best intelligence services in the world on 9-11. So it's less about poking fingers and more about, you know, that needs to be addressed by Israel. Uh, I know they know this. It's not something that, you know, it's a surprise to them. After that, I think they will. They just don't have time to do it now. It's going to have to be on their to-do list for right after this this current conflict uh, is over. So, Mick, just as observers here, are, should we set in for a long, grinding type of uh, action here? Or is there any scenario where there could be something quick, decisive, measured in days, not months? So there could be, but I think that would require the Israelis changing their objective. If they want to destroy, which is a military term, destroy Hamas, that makes them essentially completely ineffective at carrying out their military, although in their case, terrorist uh, mission, uh, unless they reconstitute themselves. If that is still their objective, it's going to take months and months to do that in Gaza. If you look at Mosul in 2016, it took nine months and there was only 9,000 fighters. Uh, Gaza has 40,000 fighters. And then if they want them to to prevent them from reconstituting themselves, they're going to have some kind of occupation. Uh, They can't just leave and let it go because Iran will move right in, uh, pick up the pieces and start arming them and all that uh, immediately. So they're going to have to be some uh, some kind of force. Maybe it's not Israelis. Maybe there's an international force, peacekeeping force that can move in to help with the uh, rebuilding of the of the area. uh, And, of course, humanitarian assistance, but also to ensure that Hamas does not uh, reconstitute itself. That's something that's actively being discussed. Much easier said than done, but something that I think should be looked at. All right, Mick, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective, uh, your analysis. Mick Mulroy, he's a co-founder of the Lobo Institute. Lots of uh, experience in that part of the world. Former power military operations officer at CIA, former U.S. Marine Infantry officer, senior fellow with the Middle East Institute. So a lot of experience in that part of the world and with those types of geopolitical challenges. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. 
Stiefel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it looks like we are moving towards labor peace in the auto industry. Uh, GM reaches tentative agreement today with UAW ending a six-week strike. Let's break it down with Gabby Coppola, auto industry reporter for Bloomberg News. Gabby, this seems like, uh, I guess, the last deal to get done here. Anything unusual in this deal relative to what we saw from Ford and Stellantis? Um, not yet. We don't have enough details to say if there is um, big, you know, differences. I don't, I mean, I think obviously they followed the pattern on wages, you know, 25% over four years and eight months plus inflation protection or inflation adjustments. I, I think that uh, money for retirees had been one of the big sticking points towards the end for GM. And that's why you saw the UAW um, actually expanding their strike this weekend against GM before it got done. But I, I think, uh, I think temps and retiree, you know, money for pensioners and retirees was the sticking points. And we don't, we'll, we'll see <laughs> what that extra little strike did, if that bumped GM up to be in the same place as Ford and Stellantis or not. Right. Because walk us through the differences between these three, uh, auto manufacturers, they're all big, right? But GM has a lot more, uh, I think, retirees to consider. GM has, for example, more temp workers than, than Ford, maybe a little uh, fewer than Stellantis. So there, there are differences between these three companies. That's exactly right. I mean, I think once uh, Ford set the pattern on wages, that was the pattern, you know, but then you get into some of these other issues, exactly what you mentioned. GM has much bigger uh, pool of retirees than, say, Stellantis does. But Stellantis, you know, has fewer plants in the U.S. Uh, than Ford and GM. Ford has the most. And the the temp worker issue, that was an interesting one because Ford has always kind of been the Boy Scout here of the D3. Like they always like to brag that they have more American, you know, workers and, you know, full-time workers than their counterparts. And that's true. <laughs> so it was kind of less painful for them to bring up the temps uh, than it would have been for GM and Stellantis. So they were yeah, I think they're probably happy to see GM and Stellantis getting pushed to where they are in that regard. Because Ford um, had what a GM has like 10 percent of its workers at any given time are temps, right? Right. And Stellantis about, a little more and Ford far fewer. Ford was like around what we reported going into the strike was Ford was around 3 uh, percent. I think GM was around 9 or 10 percent and Stellantis was like 12 percent. And I think one of the things that really strikes me, Matt, um, just looking at this, what the contract they got, it is like complete. They completely turned the tables. You know, the, the companies were really used to going into these things and squeezing the, the union harder and harder. Uh, Stellantis wanted even more flexibility to use more temp workers. They wanted to eliminate, uh, you know, thousands of jobs. They wanted to close this um, engine complex in Trenton, Michigan, uh, Toledo Machining. And none of that happened. I mean, they put a price to just put a, a vehicle back in Belvedere, Illinois. 
that was a huge deal because that was a major issue for the UAW. That was, you know, 1,300 people uh, got laid off uh, this spring when Stellantis idled that plant. Um, and it really did not look like it was coming back. So I think um, what really strikes me is just how much the union really turned the tables on the companies. It went from the union, you know, really getting pretty concessionary, you know, modest wage increases, things like that, ever since the bankruptcy, you know, ever since 2007, really, even before the bankruptcy, when they started making cuts to kind of help the automakers survive what was coming. And this, I mean, this is what Bain said he was going to do. And, you know, he did do it. Like they really, um, I'm not saying they got everything they wanted, but they got a lot and they definitely beat back a lot of the concessions the companies were looking for. So what, what, what did turn the tables there, Gabby? Was it just simply catching up and trying to get back what they had conceded over the last 12 to 14 years or, or has something fundamentally changed within that relationship? I, I think it was a few different factors. I mean, one, I think the automakers knew they needed to pay more because of inflation, right? I mean, I always remind people of this, that, you know, we saw during the pandemic, the labor market's been very tight ever since then. Inflation's been really, you know, the highest and, you know, interest rates are high. That was really squeezing people. I mean, don't forget a temp worker, you know, take Solandis, for instance, you know, they had the biggest number of temp workers. Those people made $15.78 an hour. Um, and then you think about all the inflation that happened over the past uh, couple of years, you know, the, the non-union employers, Amazon, Starbucks, everybody was raising wages to respond to the tight labor market and inflation. And the, and the company, the car companies kind of hadn't done that. They hadn't paid the bill, right? The bill was coming. So I think for sure part of it was like they legitimately knew they had to pay more. Uh, I think part of it was, um, yes, you know, after 2008, people really felt like they deserved the, the mentality of the union is that we gave these concessions to you guys to get you through. They weren't supposed to be permanent, right? And right. the car companies were like, no, this is our new business model. This is our new labor cost model. This is our new operating. <laughs> How quickly do you forget? By the way, yeah. Gabby, um, is it is uh, some of this also, for example, Stellantis, it's easier for them to agree because, as you say, they don't really make that much stuff in this country. And if they're going to, if somehow magically Dodge and Chrysler become brands where they're going to produce more cars, I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like it's going to happen now. No. Um, they'll make them <laughs> in Canada or they'll make them in Mexico. I mean, this is essentially the union sealing its fate in terms of uh, not, not going to add any extra capacity in the U.S. for a few years, are we? Well, I think, you know, that is certainly a concern, I think. And I've even heard that concern expressed from some people in the in the labor movement. Like, oh, I hope we didn't do so much that we're now going to shield ourselves from future investment. Um, I'm not, I, you know, let, I am I am not going to rush to judgment. I'm going to wait and see what happens. I look forward to doing a lot more reporting in the coming weeks, talking to people on the executive side to say, wow, what are you guys going to do here? You know, um, but yeah, it's not... Um, it's true. People want low labor costs. On the other hand, you've got the Inflation Reduction Act. You've got all these incentives, you know. Um, and I, I didn't mention, but obviously, I think the biggest thing w- was Sean Fain and the new leadership at the UAW. This is a very different, m- more hard left, more, um, you know, just really more radical, more just more militant. Well, you know? and I wouldn't, and I, think, I wouldn't want yeah. to, I wouldn't use the term unbribable, Gabby, because I would want, I wouldn't <laughs> want to make that allegation. You know, but but, uh, uh, but yeah, past union leaders between, are in prison, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I would say that 
some things that were great that the Sean Fain and the leadership did was they brought this level of transparency um, to the union and to the process of negotiation. I mean, Fain was on there every week doing these Facebook Live, you know, updates, speaking directly to the membership. You know, in the past, this was something that happened behind closed doors with a few group of men, or, you know, and they would come out and be like, here's the deal. You know, and there was a lot, a lot of mistrust between the leadership and the membership, especially once the, you know, corruption scandal started. Um, so in some ways, you kind of had to have this, like, clean break with the past and do things really different. And I think that Spain just really won the trust of people. And it feels like a much more democratic union and, and honestly, like a healthier union just from like an engagement standpoint. And I think that gave them a lot of power, you know. I don't think they could have gone on forever, right? Like people were starting to hurt, especially people who've been on strikes since September 15th, like yep. at the Jeep plant, you know, the, you know, stuff like truck plant in Michigan for Ford. Um, you know, people were getting tired. Right. For sure. Hey, yeah. Gabby, do you think the UAW takes these wins and maybe it goes down south to some of these non-unionized oh, plants? Oh, that's and- definitely there. 100% that's the plan. I mean, last night, uh, Sean Fain, when he was going over the Ford um, details, he said it's not just going to be the big three; it's going to be the big four, five, six. Meaning they have did the whole mentality BMW. of these contracts was this is our calling card to the non-union plants. Fascinating. I, I wonder when we get more details if we're going to find out cool stuff like uh, what cars is Dodge going to build? What cars? Ah. I mean, is Chrysler only going to have the Pacifica, or are we going to well, find the, out plans for no, future well, products? Chrysler has shown a lot of. Chrysler is really trying to go beyond, you know, the minivan. Um, we'll see, I mean, we'll see what the actual industrialization plan is. But I mean, they brought out a lot of really sleek looking kind of crossovers, um, kind of, you know, mid-range, like, kind of close to pro, hopefully like, you know, more affordable, kind of stylish um, that would kind of appeal to, I think, to, like younger people, you know, that kind of, you, know, you don't necessarily have kids. The 20s and 30s like a crossfire (laughs) the crossfire was pretty cool at the time yep all right all right gabby thank you so much for joining us gabby coppola auto industry reporter for bloomberg news uh joining us on this gym reaching a tentative agreement with the uaw ending a six-week strike so your dodge challenger with the scat pack was actually made in canada right yeah whereas my bmw was made in like tennessee that's right so i bought an american made car all the bmw uh x cars so all the suvs are made here in america all right so i bought americans how about that you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130 all right let's get back to israel we want to broaden our discussion out to kind of a, a geopolitical discussion of that region of the world and we can do that with ambassador adam airily he is a principal at ibero american consultants he was a former uh, u.s ambassador to the kingdom of bahrain from 2007 to 2011 so he knows that part of the world ambassador thanks so much for joining us here i guess there's a million ways to go here it seems like israel is really ramping up its attacks in gaza one of the concerns obviously for uh, you know the united states and others is what is the risk right now, do you believe, of this kind of regional conflict kind of uh, and, and focused on Gaza expanding into a more of a regional conflict, bringing in other players? Where are we on that risk spectrum right now? Well, it's already started, frankly. Um, over the last two weeks, you've seen 
pretty constant uh, exchange of fire between Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon and Israeli forces in the north of Israel. It hasn't gotten as much attention as obviously the hostilities in Gaza, but both sides have suffered dozens of casualties on, in that, on that front. And then the United States has been attacked uh, dozens of times in the last couple of weeks in its forces in Iraq and Syria have been attacked by drones and, and missiles fired by groups controlled by Iran on the, in those territories. So, you know, I would call it a, not even a boil, but a kind of simmering of the pot, which we see as the heat rises. The question is, will it, will it reach a high boil? And frankly, that's, what the Biden administration is spending a lot of its time attending to. I uh, I wonder, first I want to say that um, nothing justifies uh, the attacks that we saw on October 7th from Hamas into Israel. And I don't want um, anyone to think that, that, I, that I'm going there. But did this... Um, did this whole tragedy evolve in a sense from... Um, the attempt of the U.S. to normalize relations between the Saudis and Israelis. I, I only ask because I saw, who's the New York Times columnist that you love Tom so Friedman. much? Tom Friedman, I think, wrote a piece saying, you know, when, when we saw a picture of an Israeli, like, defense minister uh, getting all suited up to pray in uh, Jeddah, that it was sure to outrage um, the Arabic world. Well, uh the short answer, in my opinion, is no. Uh, but remember, everything is connected, right? Uh, but the reason I, I'll explain why I say no, but at the same time, there's a connection. Uh, you know, this attack, uh, which involved thousands of, of Palestinians uh, invading Israel on, by, by air through paragliding, land and sea, right, uh, was and, and seizing predetermined targets, right, was a complex operation that that took Israel totally by surprise. Now, you don't do something like that uh, without years of careful planning and preparation, right? Good point. Good point. Yeah. Okay. So the, the rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, it's only been in the last couple of months. Right. So clearly Hamas has been planning this for a while. Right. And and one cannot say that the uh, provocation or the what set this in motion was Israel Saudi normalization. However, however, and this is where the connection comes in, Hamas uh, is is competing for political power among the Palestinian and Arab street, let's say. So, you know, they saw themselves as maybe getting outmaneuvered a little bit by Israel in its rapprochement with the Arab states like Bahrain, like UAE, like Morocco, who were all signatories of the Abraham Accords, which is where we were trying to bring Saudi Arabia. So, again, it's not unconnected, but at the same time, it's not Saudi related. It is basically peace related. In other words, Hamas which is a military terrorist organization, uh, doesn't benefit from peace, right? Yep. They only benefit from continued conflict. Mm. Adam, uh, or 
I want to get your thoughts here on, on these uh, hostages because that is just a difficult, difficult situation uh, for Israel. Um, what is the role that Qatar is playing in this? And is there any scenario where this ends well? The, you know, there's been a lot of, um, how should I put it? Uh, there's been a lot of steam being let off in the media and about Qatar. And, you know, Qatar is a country that I know very well. I've worked in. Uh, and it's, again, it's very complicated. But here's the, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that Qatar's relationships with Hamas have come about at the request of and with the cooperation of the United States and Israel over the last 20 years, 15, 20 years. Why? Because Hamas is a terrorist organization. We can't deal with them. We need somebody who can. And we've chosen, we, meaning the United States and Israel, have chosen Qatar as our preferred intermediary. So when people say Qatar supports Hamas, that's really not fair because Qatar is kind of doing us a favor in terms of being a channel to Hamas to help stop hostilities, help release hostages, help get money and supplies to got to Palestinian civilians. Now, what's different in the present conflict, really, is that you know the United States and Israel has decided, have decided, right, rightfully so, I believe, you know, no more negotiations, no more business at all with Hamas. That's over. We've gone from, you know, tolerating an inconvenience to needing to eliminate a, a, a serious threat. That puts Qatar in a difficult position. What they're trying to do, I think, again, with U.S. and Israeli uh, cooperation is negotiate the release of these hostages so that Israel can then go in and flatten Hamas. Uh, will they succeed? I doubt it. Why? Because... Hamas recognizes that the only thing standing between it and the full force of the Israeli military are 200 hostages. So, so I, I wonder, um, you know, that's problematic in Gaza. And then on the northern border with Lebanon, you've got um, Iran lobbing missiles in via its proxy, Hezbollah, right? And it, and it looks like from the rhetoric, you know, Mick Mulroy just told us from the Lobo Institute, he thinks Iran wants this conflict to broaden out. Is that inevitable as well? Um, I think that's a little uh, simplistic that Iran wants this conflict to broaden out. What does Iran want? Iran wants two things. It wants the United States out of the Middle East, and it wants Israel <laughs> to be eliminated, mm. right? Uh, at least if, if you believe what the Iranian leaders have been saying for the past 40 years. Uh, so the question for Iran is how to best achieve those objectives, right? Is it by launching a full-scale war between Lebanon through Hezbollah and Israel, which Israel, by the way, which if it happened, Israel would, by the way, destroy Beirut. I mean destroy it right yep uh, or does it you know so i think i think frankly iran is kind of figuring its way feeling its right. way through to see what's the best use of its exactly forces uh, uh, ambassador unfortunately we have to just leave it there because of time up against a time constraint we really appreciate getting your time admiral adam 
Airely. He's a principal at uh, Ibero American Consultants, giving us his perspective on the developing situation in industry. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I am, I'm going to be honest with you, people. I am not looking forward to talking to our next guest here because our next guest wrote this. The last time the Federal Reserve raised its benchmark interest rate and held it there for a considerable period of time was in 2006 and 2007. That episode ended in calamity. This time may be different. After all, with the benefit of hindsight, policymakers can do better, but you can't on, count on that outcome. Ed Harrison joins us. He's a senior editor for Bloomberg News. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Ed, boy, I remember that time period really well, and it was scary for everybody. And I was, I was a seasoned Wall Street veteran. I didn't know what was going to happen. Talk to us about the parallels you see maybe from today back to 2006, 2007. Yeah, uh, uh, great setup there. I have to say that uh, I, I do remember it well in terms of uh, the housing bubble. Yep. But the thing that people don't really remember as well in retrospect is, is that uh, everything looked pretty good by and large right up until the very end. And it was that holding interest rates at a high level over a considerable period of time that ended up uh, hurting the economy. You know, uh, the Bernanke, he raised the interest rates up to a certain level, and then they, were, they stayed there uh, for more than a year. And it was in that period of time that things started to fall apart. And so that's the thing to be worried about. We're not in that period yet. We're still in the hiking period. We're still getting to the, that level. But once we get there and stay there, that's when uh, we have to be worried. Of course, it's not just uh, rates that are interesting right now. It's growth, right? 5.4% um, in Q3 was the Atlanta Now uh, GDP forecast. We saw a reading the other day of 4.9%, so just huge. But how much of that is fueled by deficit spending? And how is that different than our situation in, in 2006? Because we're running now a $2 trillion deficit um, and pushing out total government debt to over $33 trillion. Yeah, you know, I don't think that that number, that $2 trillion number in the, def in, in the deficit from this past year is uh, sustainable for the longer period of time. And so just from a pure uh, growth trajectory perspective, it would suggest that in 2024, we're going to come down from those levels that you can't consume. The way that I was putting it in the piece that I wrote that you were uh, uh, flagging <laughs> is that it's almost like the cash out... Uh, uh, mortgages people had. They had that little extra bit of money in their pockets as a result of uh, the appreciation in their home values. We're, we have that, that little bit extra of money in our pockets because of the transfer from the deficits. Uh, but once that goes away, then I think you will see people uh, start to spend incrementally less money than they were before. And so then that growth number is going to come down. All right. Any reason to believe our Federal Reserve has learned its lesson, internalized the lesson back from the great financial crisis, and maybe how it acts going forward? Meaning what, by the way, meaning what, Paul? Because I, I sense that you think the Fed needs to start cutting rates, maybe in a preemptive fashion. I think that, no, no, I think they need to just hang for a little while. But yes, in 2024, I do believe a rate cut at some point next year. But do you think the Fed's kind of internalized what 
what what happened back in the day? I think they have like on multiple levels. I mean, I'll, I'll give you three different points. One is in terms of eighteen nineteen. You know, when a bad things happened in the um, leveraged loan and in the high yield market, that you saw that uh, the Fed uh, stopped their their rate hikes uh, at two point five percent. The second thing is, is is the fact that when we saw bad things happen in March with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, yep, yep. they came in there and they, uh, you know, in, in sort of a, almost a precise way, they, they created a liquidity provision just for that specific part of the economy without, like, you know, flooding the entire economy with money. And then the third thing I would say is, is that the Fed is much more focused now on uh, making sure that the you know the people who are the last on the employment ladder st- are still have a chance to get in there. They don't want to go to the days where you know people get hired and then like you know three months later they're the first to let be let go. They want the 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 cycle to last. And Jerome Powell's talked about that. So, but I mean, if we're focused on growth, if we're focused on unemployment. Um, are we still watching what's going on with inflation? Because that is uh, uh, the other part of the dual mandate that they've been talking about for two years, right? And promising us that they're going to get it back down to 2%. We're still more than 50% above that. So do they just give up on that? No. And, and you know, I think that's the tricky part. And that's the scary part in the sense that really, if we're at three-ish percent now on almost all levels, there's no way, especially with unemployment where it is, uh, you know, which is below uh, 4%, that they can do anything but hold. There's no way they can cut with inflation at those levels. Right. So that almost guarantees a repeat of the hike and hold for a long period of time that we saw that caused so much pain uh, 15 years ago. So I think that it's very unlikely that we're going to get out of this cycle without something breaking uh, the question is, is what is it going to be and when is it going to happen? And what's their reaction going to be once that does happen? So if we get, I mean, we say $2 trillion uh, budget deficits are unsustainable, but who's going to change that, right? I mean, it doesn't look like um, we're going to have a much smaller deficit. I mean, maybe if it's a trillion dollars, that's much smaller, but still too much, right? Um, are, are we going to see budget deficits continue to run at this level? And if we don't, the Fed has to cut in order to pad the uh, economy. Well, you know, I would look at it in terms of the what I would call the monetary offset. You know, we know from the from the past when the fiscal policy is pumping money in, the Fed feels compelled to do something about it. And so the, everyone's talking about rate cuts in 2024. If we still have these deficits, adding spending, keeping the GDP growth high, we could be talking about rate hikes in 2024. Yikes. I think that that is a potential that we actually get another rate hike, not in December, but in December and then again later, or you know, even multiple rate hikes in 2024. Ed, I'm trying to refinance the mortgage, my man. I need rates to come down a little bit. So work with me here. Labor market. I tell you what, I, I haven't understood this labor market really at all. I'm just so shocked that it remains so robust here. And, and some people tell me it's the hoarding of workers. I don't know what that means i don't know how is it really that robust i think is a question a lot of people are starting to ask yeah what do you think yeah i think that it is it's bifurcated in the sense that uh it isn't as robust as we think right because when you look at continuing claims they're very high and they remain high but at the same time when you ask businesses uh how do you feel they're like 
you know, we're not getting enough workers. There aren't enough workers out there. Uh, I think that there's, people, when people talk about the skills mismatch, it really is there. So the people who are not getting employed are remaining on the unemployment rules for considerably longer than we would like. But at the same time, there's still that dearth. I think it's because we're in the baby bust period. That's those people who were born after 64 coming into the prime. Uh, all of the baby boomers are leaving, and that's leaving us uh, you know, with a shortage of workers. Uh, and as a result of that, it's putting upward pressure on, uh, on, um, on, on wage gains, and, and, and that's helping bolster the economy in some ways. I don't know. I'm still here. You think the feds can make a mistake? And I don't know what a mistake is raising. I would think it would be a mistake. But do you think the Fed makes a mistake? Because I'm not sure what's going to break out there like the housing market back in the day. Well, you know, the, the, the question is, is it, uh, is it a mistake for them to, uh, to take the, the punch bowl away? Right. I mean, if you look at any chart of the S&P 500 over the last 15 years, it looks pretty astonishing. Taking the punch bowl away <laughs> in this sense would mean holding? Right. Wait, no. <laughs> taking the punch bowl away would mean raising. Holding is the punch bowl still there, which is crazy to think about because they've gone up 550 basis points in less than two years. But at the same time, the fiscal spend is just like a machine, right? Yeah, I mean, you have these two forces going against one another. And so they're thinking, okay, once this machine starts to dwindle, then uh, we, can, uh, we can sort of passively tighten. Uh, you know, they haven't said those words exactly, but if you listen to Lord Bostic Logan. Bostic has pretty much said that, right? Right. Yeah. It, it, we're passively right. tightening because real interest rates are going up. Yep. And, and moreover, when you have all of this money being pumped out in terms of deficit spending, that means that you, as a result, need more uh, higher rates to absorb all of that. All right. That wasn't so bad. Ed Harrison, thanks so much for joining us. Ed Harrison's the senior editor, Bloomberg News. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Kaylee Lines joins us. She's host of Bloomberg Sound On and Bloomberg's Crypto. 
and we also are joined today by Amy Lee Copeland. She is a partner at Rouse and Copeland. That's a law firm based in Georgia. So we want to check in with both of these folks. Kaylee, let's start with you on the Republican front. Um, lots of movement there in the list of potential nominees here. Mike Pence dropping out, Nikki Haley rising in the polls. What's the feeling in D.C. these days? Well, at least the field poll is narrowing. We've had a, a number of candidates competing for the Republican nomination, and slowly we've start to see them trickling out of the race as it becomes abundantly clear that Donald Trump is still far and away the front runner. That said, there are some people on the upswing. Mike Pence is now out. He has not actually uh, endorsed any one of the remaining candidates yet, so we'll see if he throws his support uh, behind someone else. Of course, his former boss in Iowa, which is really where a lot of these races are now focusing, is still leading by dozens of points at 43 <laughs> yeah. percent but nikki haley at 16 percent which now ties her with ron desantis he actually has moved from 19 percent in iowa in august down to 16 whereas she's jumped from about six percent in the polls up to 16 so she's really one that is ascendant right now exactly well as it relates to former president donald trump obviously one of the big big issues for his candidacy would be his legal challenges, particularly, well, there's one big one down in Georgia. Uh, Amy Lee Copeland, thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us about what's the lay of the land down in Georgia these days for the former president and his legal woes there. Hey, good afternoon. Well, right now, 19 defendants have been indicted in this massive Georgia RICO indictment. Four people have entered pleas of guilty, including three of Trump's legal advisors and a bail bondsman with connection to the Trump campaign. The DA's office has approached six other defendants to try to solicit pleas or to at least engage in plea negotiations without any success. And they have confirmed to CNN, at least, that Trump and Giuliani and Eastman and Meadows have not been offered pleas. So the case continues to go along with the documentary evidence and now the attorneys who are pleading guilty and agreeing to testify truthfully or in Jenna Ellis's case, cooperate fully against the former president. So, uh, Amy Lee, what's the worst case scenario for Donald Trump? Well, the worst case scenario is that he goes to trial and gets convicted. Um, there are documents that the DA has encountered. Remember, there was not just a grand jury in this case, but a special purpose grand jury that investigated for over a year. It heard testimony from 75 witnesses, including election deniers. And this special purpose grand jury issued recommendations that people be indicted and a regular grand jury did indict. So the case is moving along. Uh, it should go to trial probably after the January 6th trial in D.C. And that looks like it might be even in summer of 2024. I, I'm just wondering because, you know, we have an election denier now as Speaker of the House and uh, and that after January 6th. So um, and then if Donald Trump becomes the U.S. president, he would, I guess, have the power to pardon himself, right? So could all- But not could, in Georgia. Not in Georgia. I see, not for a state. Sovereign. Interesting. Not for a state conviction, yeah. So, but it's not um, imaginable that he would be jailed in Georgia and elected U.S. president and not be, you know, let out to go to Washington, D.C., right? I don't know. I don't know. Kaylee, it, it would, we, 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 we kind of talk about this, Kaylee, but- just, let's be honest, the polls are telling you that his voters mm -hmm. don't care. How does a party kind of deal with all his legal challenges here? 
Well, they're still contending with it, Paul. But to your point, his base of support, that core base of Trump voters, always Trump voters, don't seem to have been rattled at all by each and every case that is brought against him, both civil and criminal. In fact, it really only seems to cement it as he kind of tries to frame this as a narrative in which the Justice Department is being weaponized against him. You look at the gag order that was just reinstated here in Washington in the case that Judge Chutkin is presiding over. That's the Jack Smith election interference case that was brought here in Washington, D.C., the federal one. That gag order reinstated as his uh, team tries to appeal it. And he said that's another example of the Biden administration being weaponized against him, even though this is a separate branch of government that we're talking about here. But it, it's that narrative that uh, this persecution of a political opponent uh, is what Trump is experiencing right now seems to make those people who are supportive of him even more so. And that's something that the other Republican contenders for the nomination are having to wrestle with. How do you avoid alienating that base of support while also trying to go on the attack against a front runner. It's very difficult, mm. as we've seen proven time and again. Amy, if, if President Trump were your client, what would you advise him at this point? Is, there, is a plea deal even possible? Is it just, what would you say to him? Well, what I would say to him and the advice that he takes seems to be dramatically different if you read about his other legal travails in the news. Uh, right now, I suspect that he is going to go to trial. I cannot imagine that this former president would come forward and, and enter a guilty plea or even seek a guilty plea. And Steve Sadow, his attorney, has basically said as much that these the Trump position is that these witnesses are actually going to help him and that it's not going to be a problem for him. I fully anticipate that he will go to trial. I suspect, though, that they are relying on a principle called jury nullification, that one person is just going to hold out and say there's no way we're going to convict the former president, which would launch the case into a mistrial and the DA could try it again or not. It's uh, fascinating and unprecedented, right? Yep. We've never dealt with anything like this. What's the chances, um, Amy Lee, that this that this ends up going to the Supreme Court? Well, to get to the Supreme Court, it would first have to go through the Georgia Court of Appeals, the Georgia Supreme Court, and then the U.S. Supreme Court can so only years. hear it if the Georgia Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, it could take a minute. So, Kaylee, what's the uh, if if what's the feeling in Washington D.C. the Republican National Committee? I mean, it, it just seems like the the. Uh, the, the, the Trump campaign, the Trump presence, the Trump positioning with, with the voters is so strong that he is the presumptive front runner now. Is that kind of the feeling? It is. It, it feels not necessarily like a solidified inevitability, but at the moment, it seems highly likely that Trump would be the Republican nominee, barring something really unforeseen happening. That is kind of the feeling. And then it becomes one of general election politics, because just because the former president can lead in the Republican primary and win primary elections, that doesn't necessarily translate to come Janu or November 2024 in the general election. That said, we have started to see the gap between Trump and Biden closing. I believe the real politics average of polling, if it's a Trump Trump and Biden rematch in 2024, which, by the way, polling indicates voters do not want to happen. But if that happens, they're effectively tied within the margin of error. So it would be a very close one. Amy, as you look at all of the legal issues that the former President Trump is is dealing with, which ones present the most peril, do you think? Well, I think they all do. I think probably the easiest one is for the government to prove is the classified documents case. That seems like a real red light, green light sort of issue. Uh, Georgia, though, cannot be underestimated in the peril it poses to the former president. With the attorney advisors who've already pleaded guilty, they have admitted that some statements were false. Statements like the 
all selectors were the duly certified and electors, uh, duly certified and elected electors of the state of Georgia. Jenna Ellis's guilty plea admits that it was false that dead people in Georgia voted or that felons voted. And some of those claims were the ones that Mr. Trump repeated in his call to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. Even uh, with other, other pleas, with uh, Ms. Powell's plea too, with the voting machines, that those were breached and that voter data was taken. So everything presents a unique peril to the former president. But I think probably the, the classified documents would be the easiest for the government to prove, followed shortly and closely by the Georgia case. All right. Amy Lee Copeland, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Amy Lee Copeland, she's a partner at Rouse and Copeland uh, in Georgia, and she's all in the state of Georgia, undergraduate degree from the University of Georgia, and then a law degree from the University of Georgia uh, as well. So all in there on the Georgia. And Kaylee Lines, host of Bloomberg Sound On and Bloomberg's Crypto, just giving us a little sense of the lay of the land. Boy, the next you know 12 plus months are gonna be absolutely crazy from a political perspective. Not only do you have a presidential election, um, but you've got a one of the, you know, a former president who presumably... You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk Apple Computer, Apple, why not? You know, it's not even called Apple Computer anymore. Apple Inc., I guess, is the new one. But that stock, uh, let's just refresh our memories here. $2.65 trillion market cap for Apple. The stock's up 30% uh, this year. It's up about seven-tenths today. Uh, They're going to have a product launch today. Kind of an unusual timing, it seems like to me. Uh, Maybe they'll unveil some new iMacs, MacBook Pros, all that kind of stuff. So let's break it down with Mark Derman. He's a chief correspondent covering technology and Apple for Bloomberg News. I have no idea where he is, but uh, he's joining us somewhere via Zoom. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, What are they calling this product launch tonight something Halloween-ish, I think? Maybe they should call it Apple Computer Inc. again, right? They changed the name to Apple Inc. in 2007 when they uh, started selling the iPhone and some of the other mobile products. But today is all going to be about computers. And to answer your question, they're dubbing the event tonight Scary Fast, right? That's a flick at Halloween, right, in the U.S. and and elsewhere, Tuesday evening, October 31st. Uh, But they're also going to be holding their keynote tonight on Monday evening, which is a first, a nighttime event. Usually their keynotes would start about 15 minutes from now, but instead it's not going to start for several hours. Now, the scary fast is is a double meaning because they're referring to their new chips. And like you said, these new processors will be going into the MacBook Pro uh, as well as the iMac. So is, you know, it's, we don't really talk about the computers as much uh, as, you know, the iMacs and the MacBook Pros and that kind of stuff. It's all about the, the phone and the wearables and all that kind of stuff. Just refresh our memories, what the, you know, the computer part of their business means to them. Yeah, the computer part of the business means a lot more than the revenue it generates. It generates between, let's say, 6 and $10 billion a quarter right? It generates about 10 to 11% of their annual revenue each year, but it means so much more than that. Their most vocal consumers are the ones who are Mac loyalists. These are the people who tell their friends to buy a Mac, to tell their friends to buy other Apple products, to tell their friends to buy iPhones, right? To tell their friends to buy iPads. Now, the other thing Apple's trying to do is they're trying to get people to buy multiple products, right? They're trying to get people to buy not only a Mac, 
buy an iPhone, buy an iPad as well, and create that full ecosystem. And in many ways, the Mac sits at the center of the ecosystem. So it generates only about 10% of revenue, but it's so much more important than that. Mark, talk to us about kind of the chips that are going into these things these days. Where are they getting their chips? Um, and where's Apple? And, and I know there's been talk time to time about producing their own chips. Just give us kind of an update of what's happening on the chip side of the business. Yeah, so today they're going to introduce three new chips, the M3, the M3 Pro, and the M3 Max. And these are their next generation versions of their in-house Mac processors. These are chips designed and developed entirely by Apple using what's known as an instruction set or a core framework uh, licensed from ARM, right? We've been talking about ARM a lot lately. And they're actually manufactured in Taiwan by a company called TSMC. So these are in-house designs. And to make it very clear, this is the same exact chip technology that they've been using in the iPhone and the iPad and the Apple Watch for many years now. And the benefits for a computer are tremendous. Battery life, speed, efficiency, the, the, the ability to sort of customize the processor and the software to work together to create a better user experience. Before this transition, they were using Intel, which meant Intel was mm. developing and producing the hardware, the components, Apple was producing the software. And so that necessitated a mix, right? Apple's doing one thing, Intel's doing another thing. And sometimes the hardware and the software didn't integrate as well as it does today, as it does today because they have one company now developing everything. So it's actually a pretty unique thing in the industry. Uh, and that has led to big revenue jumps, usability, uh, as well as customer satisfaction on the company's computers lately. Mark, let's switch gears and, and talk about China. Um, it's obviously such a huge part of the Apple investment story, uh, both as a s supply chain issue in terms of sourcing product, as well as being a, an end market for its products. Um, so no, arguably, there aren't too many companies more exposed to China than, than Apple. What's the concern there on the demand side, on the customer sales side? It just feels like there might be a, a growth in nationalism within China that may affect Apple product sales. What do we know right now? We really won't know for sure until the very end of January or early February when Apple announces its Q1 results. That's going to be the first full quarter of iPhone 15 sales and really the first full quarter until we start to catch wind that maybe there's an issue with Apple in China related to government bans, increased nationalism, and the new Huawei Mate phone, right? And so we really have to wait to know for sure. But the tea leaves we're reading, the demand we're seeing, the anecdotal evidence, some of the reports, the research reports we're seeing from there is indicative that there may be a little bit of a slowdown in China. Now, if you were to look at Apple's website, if you were to look at the lines at the retail stores in China, you're not really going to see the full picture, right? Those are showing pretty positive evidence of good things happening there. But as you know, the majority of people don't buy their iPhones through Apple. They buy them through carrier stores and such, right? And so we really got to wait to see the full numbers to get the full picture. But if the latest reporting out of the region is to believe there's a bit of a slowdown there, which obviously, given that Greater China is about a fifth of Apple sales yeah. and is where the majority of products are produced, anything going on negatively in China is something that we and investors and analysts very much need to pay attention to. So our eyes are glued to that situation. How much of a... How highly, I guess, is the Apple brand valued uh, in China amongst consumers? Yeah, the Apple brand is extremely strong in China. It's known as a very affluent brand. It's one of the top tier brands. You can put it in the same category of things like Chanel and, and Louis Vuitton and, and YSL potentially, right? right up there with fashion brands. And so in China, many people consider it a mix of technology, 
uh, and fashion. That's why the Apple Watch is so popular there. That's why the high-priced Macs are gaining in popularity there. Uh, that's why people in China are springing for the highest tier iPhones, right? These $1,500 US equivalent plus devices. Uh, but clearly the brand is taking a little bit of, uh, it's, it's on a little bit of shaky ground right now. I wouldn't call it a, you know, three alarm fire, but it's something we're watching. And once we get the numbers in the next few months, we'll really know how bad the situation is there. All right, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. Mark Gurman, he's the chief correspondent, uh, technology, uh, and of course that means Apple uh, for Bloomberg News. He is based out in our uh, Los Angeles bureau, which is a awesome uh, office there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.